Hello and welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss every year of film history in order, starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema. And this week, we've made it up to 1934. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I'm a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I'm Glenn Covell. I'm a filmmaker. And uh, yeah, we're, we're into 1934 right now, getting toward the end of the, I guess, at the end of the pre-code era, uh, but we'll yeah. get into that. Glenn, what's going on? What's up? Uh, like with me as a person? As with you as a person. I don't know if I told you that the um, the silent short film that I shot a little while ago uh, got into at least one film festival, so Ooh, that's fun. Nice. Got that to look forward to. What festival? Can you say? I think so. The The Triborough Film Festival in Queens. That's all three boroughs. There's three of them. True, but it's it's the... The, the screening is in Queens. I saw the new Godzilla movie. It was very good. I need to Check see it out. that. Yeah. yeah. It's very good. What about you? I uh, just went on a bit of a, uh, a short excursion to Los Angeles. Indeed. How did that go? Good. Good. Uh, good old time. I, I went to Disneyland for the first time, so that was uh, pretty cool. Um, what, did what's, you go, what's your agape expression? Did you expression? go to Galaxy Edge? So I did... And I was going to skip it because I was like, nothing's worth waiting two hours in line. But uh, the Star Wars. <laughs> the line got to about half an hour and I was like, OK, now's my chance. I'm going to go do it. And I will say it was incredible. It was uh, one of the most <laughs> I- I- amazing things that I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, I want to go. The, the scale of it is unimaginable. <laughs> damn. Damn, damn, damn. And I also... Uh, uh, went to the Egyptian theater, which and saw a couple screenings there, right. which was super super cool. Got to read a little bit about the history. They had some plaques up there, and they were like, uh, "Here's an image from the first from the movie premiere of the mass or the movie premiere of the Thief of Baghdad from 1940, starring Douglas Fairbanks." And I was like, "Oh no, the 1940 version isn't the Douglas Fairbanks one." And they said, "Yeah, we know. There's a lot of issues with these plaques, and we need to fix them." <laughs> what? That's a yeah. pretty big oversight. I know. Yes, <laughs> putting the Egyptian theater on blast. Yeah, yeah. That's like, oh, it's the premiere of the original, uh, the Star Is Born film from the 1940s, starring Lady Gaga. It's like, no, <laughs> different movie. Yes, I think they just googled uh, "Thief of Baghdad" and were like, "That one looks right." Sure, mm. printed on a plaque. That one, that one looks old. Great. <laughs> But yeah, they were they. I was trying to not be uh, 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 an insufferable nerd, <laughs> an insufferable nerd, and I was like, "Hey, just just so you know, <laughs> you know." Mm. Um, but yeah, it was really cool. It's a really impressive theater, so I, I really enjoyed seeing it. I guess I should say, as you, an audience, thanks for uh, choosing us to listen to uh, <laughs> so many podcasts you could listen to. Yeah, why 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 choose this one? Uh, this uh, this boring podcast about old movies. Uh, to say. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't have a good reason. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Neither do I. Hopefully, we can make it entertaining for people. Yes, yes. Uh, but yeah, thanks for listening. Um, check us out on the socials and uh, and keep an eye out for new episodes on YouTube and your podcast app. 
with that with that stuff out of the way, you know, we always like to give ourselves a little bit of little bit of that sweet context for what is happening in in the year that we the year in which we are speaking, uh, of which we are speaking. Uh, so, uh, Glenn, why don't you uh, take it away with the news? The news of the year, nineteen thirty-four. Alcatraz Island opens its doors to the first round of prisoners as a new federal prison. The Loch Ness Monster is allegedly photographed in Scotland. Decades later, it proves to be a hoax. Public enemy number one, John Dillinger, is gunned down by police outside the Biograph Theater in Chicago. Following the death of German President Paul von Hindenburg, Adolf Hitler orders the execution of his rivals within the Nazi party and declares himself the sole head of state. Outlaw couple Bonnie and Clyde are killed in a fiery ambush by police. Cole Porter's musical Anything Goes premieres in New York City. Bruno Hauptmann is arrested in connection to the Lindbergh kidnapping case. The first set of quintuplets to survive infancy are born in Canada. Gotta give it a peppy, uh, a, a right, peppy like, read for it, uh, the it human reads, story. It reads sadder than it is. It's a, it's a happy story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, babies are alive, and all you think about is babies dying. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> the, the news from 1934 babies are alive <laughs> except the Lindbergh baby <laughs> oh no <laughs> yep correct leave all that in I mean oh are you done yeah that's it okay. that's all the news <laughs> uh yeah there wasn't there wasn't too much that happened aside from Nazis uh which, yeah a lot of uh, that in 34 yeah. Bad news, don't like it. Um yeah, not a lot of uh like criminals being killed in America and Nazis killing people in Germany. That's kind of the the two big news stories for 34. And so, then So so bright and fun. And then babies living in Canada, which is a a, a good thing. Good for Canada. Yes. <laughs> and those babies who are dead now. Uh maybe not actually. <laughs> no, I think two of them are still alive. Oh, nice. Yeah. Shouldn't quintuplets all die at the same time, you know? Wouldn't that make uh, sense? I I don't think that's really how people work, generally, but... If they were born would, at the same time, they should die at the same it time. It would be poetic. What, what, what is this? Uh, Midsummer? Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, they all, they all joined Heaven's Gate and died yeah. at the same time. <laughs> God. Uh, let's move on from all of this darkness to uh, something silly. Uh, for our one week, one reel of this year... Which is uh, the woman haters? Uh, <laughs> what a title! God. God, we can't we can't win. Everything everything's dark and grim right now. <laughs> well, it it it's a hell of a title. The movie itself was not that dark and grim, thankfully, no. because it's the Three Stooges. That's right. The first like canonical Three Stooges short. The first one yeah. that's like they're they're credited as the Three Stooges. They have, like, their names in place. The first, like, in quotes, real Three Stooges short. Uh, yeah, and they've been doing their act since 22 on mm-hmm. vaudeville and, and bit parts in movies and that kind of thing. But, yeah, yeah this is, this is, and this is post-Shemp, pre-Shemp Three Stooges. Right. Because Shemp was part of the original act and was in some of the early, some of the early film roles, but then was swapped out for, uh... For Curly, Curly's who, more iconic, anyway. I I think so. Yeah, I'm I'm more of a, a Curly fan, as I think most people tend to be. Kind of the Pete the Pete best of the Three Stooges. 
Sure. This like run of of shorts for Columbia went from 34 to 1959, which is pretty impressive. Um, how familiar were you with the Three Stooges in general? Um, I I uh I, I definitely watched a lot of Three Stooges when I was a kid. I, I don't think I've seen a Three Stooges short in a very long time. Um, mm. but uh, I, it's very much the kind of thing that a dad shows their child. You know? Yeah. Uh, Look at these funny guys slapping each other. <laughs> I remember they they used to be on AMC every night at like six PM hmm. in like a block. They'd play, play like I think two shorts with like rap commercial wraparounds with Lizzie Nielsen as a like professor of of stooge stoogery. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was I think my intro kind of to Three Stooges. I had some of the public domain ones on VHS as a kid. That I watched mm, a lot. Nice. So, are you big? Are, have you been classically a, a big Stooges fan? I guess. I mean, like, I watched them a lot when I was younger. Like, there was a period of time where I, I watched them on TV like every day because it mm. was always on. It was like, gotta gotta watch the Stooges. Like, <laughs> eat my dinner real quick so I can watch Stoogery. No Saturday morning cartoons for you. Just uh, not watch those two. T- but... Tuesday morning Stooges. Tuesday uh, evening Stooges, more like. Mm. But I'd never seen this one, um, and this one's definitely like a uh, atypical for a Three Stooges short. In in that it is, um, it's it's very Susie. It's very Doctor Susie. It's yeah. uh, it's the entire thing is kind of told in rhyming, not quite song, but but yeah. rhyming. It's a it's what was labeled a musical novelty short, which I guess was a thing in 1934 where. They would do comedy shorts as these kind of like rhyming, not quite musicals. It's a, um, it's a fun gimmick. It is, um, but even that like the they don't even though they're I think they're credited at the start as like Mo Larry Curly. Their kind of names within the fiction of the short are not like Larry is Jim. I think another one is like a, another name. Like they don't have their like classic names. Right. Um, as characters, which is kind of odd. Yeah, I mean, in in many ways, I think because they had been doing their act in some way for like 12 years already, they feel very fully formed. But in terms of the Three Stooges that we know quite well, this is like kind of a, a proto version of, of that. Yeah, the kind of their, their like classic bits haven't really fully coalesced or like been like there is slapping and eye poking but like not not to the degree that it it is done later (laughs) like i feel like a lot of their antics feels a little bit less refined in this one yeah yeah i think but honestly i I, you know i don't know i haven't seen some of the later stooge stuff in a while but i feel like some of the other stuff is just like all slapping each other (laughs) uh, just for 20 minutes and it I is. like the kind of back and forth where it kind of delves into a a, a, a slapsticky segment and then back into other stuff mm-hmm. of of this of this one. Uh, basically, they are um, joining a a club of woman haters. They get a little <laughs> pin that says "WH for Woman Hater" on it, uh, and it's a bunch of stodgy old guys in a in a room who talk about how much they hate women uh, and. Uh, like, and, partic- but particularly their, like, desire never to get married or to, like, be in mm-hmm. a relationship with a woman. Which yes. really just makes it a, a club for incels, I think. 
<laughs> well, uh, they're voluntary celibates, really. I mean, yeah, but also that's kind of part of why incels are dumb, because then they, like, get mad when someone, like, has a relationship <laughs> with a woman. They're they're yeah. like, you're not part of the club anymore. They're they're joining a proto-Reddit forum. Uh, yeah. But, but in, in the 1934 version of that. But I, before watching this, I saw the title and I was like, oof, yikes, what is this going to be? And I, I was very thankful to see that the movie is making fun of people who declare themselves woman haters. Like, right. it's very much a sort of like these old idiots. <laughs> like, <laughs> because then the, the students join the club kind of just to be included. And then Larry almost immediately starts a relationship with a woman and they all, they, they get mad at him. They're like, you can't, you're breaking the rules of the club. So they all put money down to, uh, to make sure that none of them will, uh, will fall victim to the, the praise, <laughs> fall victim to women. Um, yeah. and, and then Larry tries to call off the wedding, but, uh, he is kind of physically threatened <laughs> by, <laughs> by, by some very imposing people. There's, there's a great like visual gag of like that guy over there. He's the last one who broke off uh, an engagement and it cuts to the guy and he's like in a bunch of bandages and a sling and like a crutch. <laughs> Yeah, and then like a kind of metaphorically audible gulp uh, <laughs> from from Larry, and so he decides to go yeah. through with it. And Larry finds the... maybe one of cinema's greatest gulpers <laughs> in terms of just like, uh oh. Uh, I just watched the Seinfeld episode where uh, George is trying to call off a wedding. Yeah, so same. Uh, symmetry, poetry, a real arrives, a real Larry know? type, George Costanza. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> Uh, so the rest of the short is basically them getting into antics, trying to stop each other from being around women and trying to not uh, allow each other to see when they are trying to go after the ladies. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. And so which sometimes devolves into slapping and poking and uh, beating over the head. And all that well, kind even of thing. they like incorporate the, the eye poke into the like woman hater club like initiation thing or like to get yeah. initiated you need, need to get the your eyes poked um so i don't i, I don't think this was their the first time they had done an eye poke joke mm -hmm. but i think it's funny that they're they're like trying to incorporate it into the plot more whereas later there's like no just poke each other in the eyeballs it's fine it all seems quite violent uh, the, this this short like and what they do like it does seem like they're really hitting each other maybe not as hard as it looks but like it would feel violent if it weren't for the sound effects which I love uh, Three Stooges sound effects are like world class <laughs> some of the best sound effects in in on all of film comedy I would this, say see this this feels like to me the kind of proper sound evolution of silent slapstick uh, because those sound effects really help to sell the cartooniness that is automatically sold without sound in right. uh, in earlier shorts. Uh, and so it all feels very goofy and light, even though I think that adding sound normally adds a bit more of a sense of realness mm -hmm. to to a work. Yeah, the sound kind of gives it a like almost like a hyper real quality to it. It makes all the slaps feel like, like just giant and way louder than they should be. And Boing! 
you know. Yeah, a lot of like doink, boink, boing, you know, a lot of that kind of uh yeah, great great stuff. The guy who plays the head of the Woman Haters Club is uh Bud Jameson. He's kind of a classic three stooges straight man. He's always the one who's like getting exasperated by their antics. But uh he's already shown we've he's shown up in like a bunch of uh like Chaplin, Keaton, and Lloyd stuff already. Like he's kind of a a, a mainstay of like the old hmm. silent slapstick movies too. Hmm. I don't know, so that's fun. He kind of he bridges like both eras. Yeah, it looks like he was in a few uh lonesome like a lot of lonesome Luke mm-hmm. uh shorts. Yeah. Um and it's funny cuz I remember I remember him popping up in one of those shorts that we watched for the show and being like, "Is that the guy from Three Stooges shorts?" Oh, nice. Um good good face recognition. Yeah. Yeah. Are you a are you a a telephone? Um, <laughs> are you a right. robot? Prove, prove. <laughs> uh do you have anything else on Three Stooges? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I this is like a notable one because it's like the first official one. But I, I hope we end up watching more of these too because I think they're fun and they're like yeah, they're fun. They're they feel very like night. A lot of good nineteen thirties lingo in nineteen yeah. Three Stooges shorts for sure. And and nineteen thirties accents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see. Well, I I guess then we can uh, move on to our feature presentation. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. So we were just talking about the Three Stooges. uh, And, you know, I think we can draw them in contrast a little bit to to the Marx Brothers, uh, Mm. who have taken a sort of less directly physical um, approach toward uh, (laughs) adding sound to comedy. Uh, so let's talk about a movie that has someone that reminds me of. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about a movie that has someone that reminds me of uh, Harpo in it, uh, which is the Scarlet Empress. Uh, oh, okay. It's funny. It's long, I know it was what you a mean long, now. It's a long windup, but yeah. Uh, there's my there's my segue. Uh, sure. Scarlet the Scarlet Empress is a movie about Catherine the Great, uh, but uh, Peter the Second. Uh, is played very, very, um, very Harpo-like. <laughs> True. I did not make that connection, but now that you point it out, yeah. This is a movie from the classic team of uh, Von Sternberg and Marlene Dietrich. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did not know this was about Catherine the Great before I watched it. I was just like, Scarlet Empress, that sounds cool. And then I saw a bunch <laughs> of wigs and costumes and I was like, oh my god, so boring. <laughs> <laughs> Not a wig movie. <laughs> I really I really have a hard time with wig movies. Yeah, this is... Although I think this movie does a lot to distinguish itself from other wig movies or other movies set during what I call Nutcracker times. <laughs> Big, uh, yeah. big time nutcracker times uh visuals in this movie <laughs> yeah a costume drama i think is the word for it right but, yes uh, but yeah this this is a movie that is uh kind of wearing its pre-code nature uh on its sleeve mm-hmm. in, in in certain scenes there are Sophia, uh, as she's initially known um in, when she lives in germany and then she is kind of brought to russia uh, to become the wife of Peter the Second, 
uh, to give them an heir to the Russian throne. Uh, she's kind of learning about Russia. And then there's just like, like hear about the Ivan the Terrible and all these other uh, <laughs> violent people in, in Russian history. And then it flashes to all of these scenes of... Uh, like brutal torture and people's clothes getting ripped off and getting strung up on on wheels that torture you and that kind of thing. Yeah, beheadings. Yeah. Right, because so the Criterion release of this movie that I watched has the production code card at the start, like stamped, like approved by the production code of America. Oh. Huh. So then I immediately assumed, oh, this is like sort of one of the first, you know, like Hayes Code era movies right and then immediately like five minutes in i'm like no no it can't be because there is so much nudity and torture in this yeah i wonder i i wonder what's up with that so i i don't know i mean the whole kind of pre-code post-code thing is is kind of kind of a loose definition because like the production code existed during the early 30s it just wasn't really enforced so i think Mm -hmm. this is just like it had a card on it but it also wasn't censored by hollywood huh yeah true I wonder, I guess as we move into 35, we might see a bit more about, like, what might be different about pre-code and post-code. Yeah. But, yeah, that is interesting. I So, yeah, scratch everything that I said, because who knows? <laughs> don't don't know about that. There is a lot of violence and, and, and stuff in this movie, and it's very specific scenes. Uh, but I would say that most of it is... Um, is people in wigs talking yeah. to each other. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a pretty steamy movie, too. Like, there's a yeah. lot of a lot of making eyes, a lot of innuendo, a lot of uh, blowing up candles. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the whole crux of the movie is um, we're bringing you from Germany to Russia so that you can make us a baby, right? And mm-hmm. it goes into detail about what that involves. <laughs> this movie... Uh, I, I will say I don't I didn't know too much about Catherine the Great until I did some reading after watching this. Same. Um and I guess like yeah, I don't know. Like the, the, the whole movie is structured in a very strange way where it's like two thirds of it is her kind of going to Russia and kind of initially becoming integrated into the Russian society. And then there's a time and, and for that entire period She's very like doe-eyed and innocent, and like I'm, I'm just a, I'm just a humble little German girl. I don't know, right? I don't know very, what's going on. Very like against the kind of typical like von Sternberg, uh, Marlena Dietrich character archetype. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then like two thirds of the way in, there's an intertitle that's like some time passed and she became brutal. And 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 power grabbing, and then she's like a completely different person right after. Right that. then, then after after that point, she is like a very classical Melanie Dietrich character that is like not to say she's plays like a scheming character in most things, but like a a far more like kind of knowing, like high status, kind of aloof type of person. Right. Which yeah, that that jump is weird. That I. I think that character arc is really interesting, but they they like pull the whole middle out, so you don't really see a lot of transition. It's I mean, it's, it's hypothetically very... interesting, but I don't. They don't. Right. There is no arc. They just show a beginning and an end. Right, and that's kind of you know one of my issues with this movie is that it it has that like big jump in it. It's like no, but we want to see that happen, 
And that happens a lot in this movie is it will cut to intertitles of just explaining what happens. And then it's like, well, you could have just shown that. Yeah. As like a, as a movie, maybe. There are some weird choices in this movie, for sure, particularly related to the intertitles. Like, we don't see intertitles that much anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, It felt like it was coming from, like, a silent movie perspective in a a bit of a way, where they were like, we can just explain all of the complicated stuff in an intertitle. Mm -hmm. But this movie, you know, it does... does use sound in at least at least music in in a bigger way than we've seen in a lot of stuff uh probably in comparison to the other movies there's a lot of uh, soundtrack music in this mm-hmm. one uh including like the 1812 overture like stuff that's kind of related to russia uh as mm-hmm. far as classical music right the valkyries is in there yes i think it is it's all classical music i think right i don't know if there's any original score for this uh, I'm not sure. I don't know enough about classic music mm. to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, the thing that I think stuck out the most to me about this movie is the production design of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is really cool. And it's like much more kind of expressionistic than I think a lot of movies have been. Like this movie feels very German, even though it was made in Hollywood. Just in the sense of, like, how kind of surreal a lot of the sets are and, like, how dramatic a lot of the lighting is. I mean, you know, it's not not going as far as uh, the Golem or Caligari, but it is, No, but it's it's leaning that direction, for sure. Yeah, yeah. At least with the lighting. There's a lot of shots in this that are, like, through fabric or, like, Mm -hmm. netting or something like that. And, like, the only... The only... The... The netting itself is in focus, and so it's kind of this really interesting kind of filter over over certain things, and it sort of communicates different vibes, uh, uh, sultry vibes through mm-hmm. through uh, sheer fabric. Yeah, this is a very sultry film for sure. Yeah, um, but yeah, there's like in the kind of big Russian palace of the emperor empress, there's lots of like statues and gargoyles of like kind of creepy like deformed figures that are all like crying or like strangling each other or there's just all these very like you know spooky statues everywhere and it's like incorporated into like the chairs or the candle holders or the staircases and things and so it's like when Sophia later renamed Catherine because she needs to have a Russian name when she goes to Russia when she arrives, it's like, oh, they're in, they're like in hell now. <laughs> like, it's this very kind of like descent into darkness kind of feeling, which is cool. Yeah, I mean, there's like, um, in the first part of the movie, uh, you know, she's very innocent and there's all this like threatening auras around her that she is trying to figure out how to navigate different people, trying to use her for different purposes or treat her it poorly either, like, performatively or to, like, show their power over her or something like that. And, and yeah, and then she kind of uh, rises up to become the king of hell, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, this movie, like, ends with her asc- ascent to the throne rather than... I was kind of expecting more, like, as she is the empress, what she's doing. Uh, but it, it really is, like, her journey from, like kid to being brought into the royal family to seizing power and Mm -hmm. then that's it yeah 
Which is like, yeah, I on on paper a really great story arc, but there's like chunks missing, kind of. Yeah. Less so in plot and more just like in characterization. Yes. Yeah. the The plot's straightforward enough. I, I felt like, yeah, I felt like the characters could have been better. Mm-hmm. This movie was not the only Catherine the Great movie that came out this year. Right. Uh, <laughs> it. Uh, this kind of a right like Armageddon deep impact situation here <laughs> uh, because there was another one called the rise of Catherine the great that had Douglas Fairbanks jr. Uh, playing Peter the second, but it was generally less well regarded than this mm. one. Not to keep going back to the set thing, but like uh, a scene that really stood out to me. It's like, there's a big banquet happens fairly early on. That is like mm-hmm. this kind of nightmare wedding feast. <laughs> when Catherine is getting married to Peter. Peter is uh, the guy that you said reminded you of Harpo. Is played by uh, Sam Jaffe. Who is kind of famous for other stuff later on. This is I think his first screen role. But he's like the scientist in um, The Day the Earth Stood Still. And is in Lost Horizon. And it's like I've seen him in a, a bunch of other things. Um, uh-huh. but he's, uh, very creepy in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, edging into problematic, I guess, <laughs> but, uh, he's plays the Royal halfwit and like the, the, the idea, I guess, is that, um, the, the inbreeding has, has caused whatever's going on with him and yeah. they, they brought in some f- fresh blood, uh, which is <laughs> Catherine to just basically like. Put put some more diversity in their gene pool, yeah, and give them give them a, a, a healthy air. But yeah, he just kind of spends a lot of time being like a creepy weirdo. Yeah, uh, even though he's been sort of set up to to Catherine as like, oh, he's like the most handsome man in all of Russia, and then she shows up and he's this like weird old creep um, who looks like Harpo Marx, or at least he's acting like Harpo Marx, right? Uh, yeah, Dr- drilling holes in, in paintings and, <laughs> and stuff to spy on people. But there's there's kind of this through line through, I think, a lot of that, like, creepy production design of that, like, wealth is kind of, like, disgusting. Like, this movie is so, like, crazy opulent. There's, like, so much, like, jewelry and wealth and, like, excess everywhere on screen. And it's, like, I think that feast really kind of exemplifies. It's, like, looking at that banquet table is like it doesn't look appetizing it looks like gross and upsetting (laughs) yeah Um, a lot of a lot of exposed meat yeah and like bones and there's like this like bubbling cauldron with a skeleton next to it which i guess is the punch or something i don't know what that is supposed to be but it's like ah, sure put a skeleton next to the soup but i i like how much is expressed kind of through the like the lighting the costumes the the set design. Like, I think that stuff really stood out to me. It's like, this is a really, this is a, a very, uh, good looking movie. And not just cause Marlene Dietrich is in it. <laughs> <laughs> we should probably talk about the, the, uh, the other like lead character, uh, who is count Alexei. who's like the guy mm-hmm. that brings Catherine to Russia and is like immediately trying to seduce her. Like before they even leave. And in an early scene, just, like, plants a kiss on her, and then it's like, I love you. Also, 
I've I've done a bad thing by kissing you. You have to whip me now. And it's like, hold, like, pump the brakes, dude. <laughs> I I mean, I think it speaks to just like how she's being manipulated by people around her from the very beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. She has like a pretty bad relationship with her mom, who's like kind of uh, doing all the stuff to prepare her to become royalty. Uh, right. And doesn't really treat her with much like autonomy. Yeah, and... she's kind of treating her like property more than anything to be kind of sold off. Yeah, and then like this sexy guy who comes to uh, this, pick her up. This Dracula looking dude. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, I thought what was going to happen was they were going to go on this like eight week journey to, to Russia. And like, he was like, yes, the uh, the... The prince is very charming. He's very beautiful. And I thought it was going to f- turn out to be him mm. the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, it's kind of this big disappointment. She's like, oh, no, like the sexy guy that I kind of like, but also kind of traps me in a corner and kisses me every once in a while <laughs> is not the one that I'm with. And it's this this weirdo. Yeah. But I, I there's kind of a like in the, the first part of the movie when it's like she's kind of the one who's getting seduced by people and it's like manipulate her into doing different things and then by the end of the movie she's kind of like turning the tables on everyone so like this guy who's like trying so desperately to get Catherine into bed with him and then towards the end of the movie it's like all right i've I've, like he's finally figured it out because then this guy is also sleeping with the the previous empress and then that upsets Catherine, and so she like kind of tur- turns the tables on him at the end, which is kind of a... I'm not explaining this very well, but it's it's a good scene. Yeah, yeah. She kind of gives him this idea that, like, he's finally made it, and then she's like, go open the door for my real lover. <laughs> right, yeah. There's a good line. What is it? Right, he's, like, talking to her earlier in the movie, and she's like, oh, I could never... I, like, I don't I don't like Peter, but I, like, I, I could never be unfaithful to him. Like, we're married. And he says... The, those ideas are old-fashioned. This is the 18th century, which feels like <laughs> Joseph von Sternberg being very kind of like, <laughs> even in the 18th century, marriage was a sham, kind of. I it, Yeah, it, it gave me very like, it's the 90s. Like, it's, <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, yeah, feel, feeling like those, those uh, the, the way that everyone in the early 90s are like, it's the 90s, women work now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, I know, that that line stuck out to me is is very funny. There's a lot of like I think that line and a couple others are like knowingly very funny. Like this movie has a kind of like undercurrent of funny wit to it. I think. Yeah, there's some kind of like strange scenes in this. Like the previous like strange comedy bits that are inserted into this. Like mm. the the Empress previous to Catherine, she uh kind of talks with this like. I don't know, East Coast accent or whatever. Uh, right. She's this is... like this kind of fast talking, sassy lady who like, yeah, it, it's very, she feels out of place in this like uh, high class. Right. Because you know, it's all supposed to be 18th, 18th century Russian aristocracy. Marlene Dietrich talks with a German accent, which fits her character and it's just her natural speaking voice. But then pretty much everyone else is either British or American. And I think the Americans really kind of stand out because they're just they're talking just kind of like well hello here we are in russia so (laughs) 
Yeah, but I, I feel like it's not quite this severe, but the, the Empress, she's almost like, yay, what's the big idea? You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it feels, it does feel very out of place. There's um, a part where, like, the, the comediest bit almost in this entire movie is when the Empress is kind of taking her scepter and like she she is walking out of the out of the banquet and she she tries to grab her scepter to shake it around to show people to tell people i'm i'm your ruler listen to me (laughs) and she accidentally picks up like a like a turkey leg or something like that (laughs) and like so she's shaking around the turkey leg and then her assistant's like tapping on her shoulder and it's like your scepter's right here like pick up your scepter you know (laughs) yeah there and yeah there there's a definite kind of like not necessarily a mean streak, but a kind of this movie feels like it's it's trying to undercut the kind of the the pomp and circumstance of like royalty. Hmm. Shall we uh, move a little bit east? Talk about a movie that is um, sorry. Move a little west. Talk about a movie that is dealing with uh, some more working class people uh, in France. Ah, indeed. La Talente. La Talente. Yeah, sure. Where to start on this one? I guess right off the bat, I didn't. I wasn't crazy about this movie. Yeah, me either. <laughs> yeah, I know you it's know like so- well regarded, but it didn't. It didn't do much for me. Maybe I just I, didn't get it. I can. So this movie, uh, I think, was brought into um, the the world in many ways. Brought into like the public consciousness because of how loved it is by. French New Wave people, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. specifically like Truffaut, uh, really loved this movie. Uh, and then, you know, a bunch of uh, New York Times and uh, <laughs> Chicago Tribune uh, film critics are all like, greatest movie ever, love it, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I think it has some of the stuff about French New Wave movies that connect less with me mm. uh, as far as this kind of meandering, I don't know, like awkward dialogue or, or like kind of hyper real dialogue where everybody's just kind of like mumbling at each other or whatever. Right, it's, it's kind of kind of a 30s mumblecore movie. Yeah. Um. And yeah, it, it does have that kind of French, I haven't seen a lot of French New Wave movies, but it, it does kind of have that like embracing a lot of the kind of mundane and like everyday life stuff of like, we're just going to follow characters around as they kind of do everyday things. Uh, in this case on a boat. Um, yeah, no, I found all, all, most of the characters in this to be really kind of, uh, off-putting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, in general, just, I, it was hard for me to get sort of emotionally invested in it. Yeah, I think that, like, what this movie is going for is depicting, it's depicting some newlyweds who are immediately, like, they love each other a lot, but they immediately start fighting a lot and, and act like they hate each other there's there's a first mate on the on the boat who mentions that the two of them are always either kissing or fighting and that's like (laughs) basically the entire movie and i think the idea of the movie is them kind of rediscovering their love for each other or like finding their way through Mm -hmm. these kind of like petty squabbles but Something about all of the nature of all of the squabbles felt like fundamentally invalidating to the yeah. authenticity of their love. To right, me, it know? did. I I was sort of left feeling like these people probably just shouldn't be married. They seem like they just don't get along in general. Yeah. Um. Right, because the 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 man uh, Jean is uh the 
the skipper of a, a barge that goes throughout the rivers and canals of France. And he marries Juliette, who is from this kind of small village. And kind of right away, Juliette is like, I don't really like living on a boat, which seems like, you know, maybe a, maybe a red flag <laughs> that you married a boat captain and now live on a boat. Yeah, I don't know. It's just that there's this movie definitely has a lot of details that I like of either kind of like yeah. weird, weird character moments. Um, there's some really great cinematography in it. There's a lot of like low angles and kind of like 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 industrial landscapes, which I feel like we haven't seen a lot of outside of maybe some of the like city symphony type movies. There's some like references to the, the Great Depression in France, which is something that I thought was interesting. Lines, yeah, lines for getting hired into like yeah. work at places. Yeah, it's like the the kind of central relationship of the movie. It doesn't really. It's not that it feels dishonest, but it it just feels like I'm not invested in it. I'm like, no, these people shouldn't be together. This is bad. Yeah. Um. There's something that's sort of set up toward the beginning of the movie, uh, which is, uh, Juliette saying that when you look deep into the water, when you put your head into the water, you see uh, the person that you love uh, kind of appear in the water. And Jean starts like sticking his head in the water. He's like, I don't see anything. I don't see anything. And she's like, take this seriously. It's <laughs> just like, it's, it's real. It's real. But it kind of becomes this uh, motif uh, that wraps back around uh at at a point in the movie, at their sort of lowest point, they sort of angrily separate from each other. Uh, Juliette really wants to see Paris, and because of some convoluted circumstances, like it's, she's not able to. Uh, and they could stay a little while longer, but he's like, "I'm the boat skipper. I got to keep going." And it's it's overnight. She kind of sneaks out to go and see Paris, uh, even though he told her not to go. Uh, and then when he sees that she's left, he's like, this is the worst insult that could happen to me. And he, uh, he leaves the boat. Mm -hmm. He leaves her to be on her own. She has to, she only has what's on her back and she has to find work and food for at least well, a couple days. She, she has money initially, but then gets, uh, it gets stolen. Mm -hmm. And she's trying to buy a train ticket and someone steals her bag. There's also the, the whole thing with the, the sort of traveling salesman slash magician that they run into another, another Harpo Marx type one could say. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's just this very annoying guy that's trying to dance with Juliet and kind of steal her away. Um, and has like, it's like, Hey, you want to buy a scarf and pulls like 20 scarves out of his sleeves. He's charming. In, I mean, in, in a way, I don't know. He, he has a very kind of like French clown slash, traveling salesman thing going on that i i don't know i found very irritating well and so did uh so did john who just wanted to beat him up <laughs> he was just seething while he was looking yeah. at him <laughs> um but yeah as they uh as they separate um and yeah he's mad at her for kind of dancing with that guy and all that he he takes off on the boat and then as soon as they separate they both go oh man I, re I really like that person that I mm. abandoned now. Yeah. Jean is just, in, in particular, is just staring off into space nonstop. Yeah, there is, there's a great shot of him, like, standing on the deck, 
of the boat as like the shore is going by in the background behind him that is very striking and very good. Uh, and, and all of that kind of crescendos in him jumping into the water, into the cold Sen, and is it the Sen? I don't know. And um, it's the water. <laughs> swimming around deep in the water, and then you finally see these superimposed images of mm. Juliet, uh, and he's finally seen her in the water. He truly loves her. Uh, and then, but he doesn't know how to find her. And then the the first mate helps helps yeah. him find her. I guess a thing that I did like about this movie, I think, I think that a thing that I think this movie does well is like the times when Jean and Juliet are getting along. I do think there is kind of like there's an aspect of just like how how they kind of like interact with each other that it feels more like people who are actually in love with each other than I think a lot of old movies tend to be. Hmm. There's kind of a certain degree of, like... I feel like Jean and Juliet do a lot of, like, cuddling and just, like, uh, you know... They, like, hold each other very closely in a way that I feel like old movies don't tend to portray. Hmm. Um, that, that kind of stuck out to me. Because it's French. Yeah. The, the French are allowed to show people, like, <laughs> sleeping in one bed. Unlike yeah. some other movies that we also watched. Uh, I, I think my favorite movie moments of this are those parts when they're apart and it's very like kind of like wistful and yearning. I, mm. I, I think that's when the, the sort of disaffected French new wavy cinematography <laughs> style like sort of helps uh, mm-hmm. sell those emotions. Yeah. But yeah, I I just had a hard time with this movie. <laughs> yeah. And maybe it is just like I'm not I'm not like tuned into its wavelength or something um but hey you know it didn't 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 do a lot but like like another like um sunrise which i did not i also had mixed feelings about the Mm. the romantic angle in uh maybe if i watch it again then i'll i'll feel it some more you know maybe another i guess romantic sort of uh travel film oh okay yeah (laughs) yeah Sure. Is the Academy Award Best Picture winner for 1934. It Happened One Night, directed mm-hmm. by Frank Capra. Yeah. Good movie. I'd never seen this before, even though it's like a very famous film. It's a classic. I'd seen some of Frank Capra's other later stuff, like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life. This is like, I feel like this is the the like quintessential romantic comedy. This is like all of the things that at least I would associate with like romantic comedies as a genre is like crystallized in this movie. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's like these, it's definitely got that romantic comedy angle of two people who kind of initially dislike each other, spending Mm -hmm. a lot of time around each other and then learning to love each other. But then they don't realize how much they love each other until, uh, until Mm -hmm. something, something happens to question it. Yeah. I mean, it it literally ends with a, a runaway bride. At a wedding. Yes. And as every romantic comedy ends, with an auto gyro. <laughs> <laughs> with a wealthy aviator flying, landing an auto gyro on a lawn. Yeah. that I feel like that's just, like, if they needed to prove that this is, in fact, a 1930s movie. This movie is sort of like, the way that I watch Clueless now, and it's like, this is so obviously a movie from the 90s that it feels like a parody. Like, it's like... If you were going to make a movie now and, like, put as much, like, 90s-ness into it, 
that's what Clueless is. Whereas it happened one night, I feel like is like if you tried to distill as much as you could about the 1930s into a single movie, I feel like this is one one of the better examples. Uh, I definitely like see a lot of DNA from this movie in aspects of Oh Brother Where Art Thou, um, mm. and um, in particular, there's this. Um, bogdanovich movie that i really like called paper moon Mm. um which like uh kind of takes this concept and like applies it to a father-daughter relationship in Mm -hmm. a way also on black and white probably as an intentional throwback to these kind of movies yeah this is this is a great kind of like road trip movie too yeah true uh the the general setup is that there is a a rich girl who wants to marry she, she wants to marry the first guy who she's ever met who uh, outside the context of of who her dad has told her to hang out with (laughs) um so uh, who happens to be an aviator kind of a a pompous douchebag yeah and so she leaves she runs away from home in miami i believe or somewhere Mm -hmm. in florida to take a bus to new york city uh to meet up with him and uh, the hijinks on the way yeah setbacks yeah (laughs) Partly due to her being kind of insulated from the real world and not mm-hmm. knowing, not being street savvy. Yeah, well, yeah, because she she runs into Clark Gable as a kind of uh, down on his luck reporter, who then is like initially kind of trying to get her where she's going because he wants the story, but then very very quickly they both start falling for each other, which is very uh, sweet and cute. A lot of falling asleep on each other's shoulders, that that type of thing. Yeah. A lot of the 1930s style of, like, uh, mean banter uh, that that they do with each other. (laughs) Right. It's, like, mean banter of them kind of, like, trying to cover up what they're actually thinking or feeling. Mm -hmm. Right. Because she's wealthy and so, like, doesn't know how to, like, navigate the world super well. A thing that kind of highlights that, I guess, is that this movie is pretty uh pretty direct in its references to the great depression i think Mm -hmm. of like people who are out on the road who like don't have money for bus tickets or food and like staying at like uh like trailer parks and things where there's communal showers and you have to wait in line (laughs) to use the shower she's never heard of a line before (laughs) right yeah and so it's like very like fish out of water stuff which which plays very well the one scene of this movie that I'd seen before, which is very good, of them hitchhiking, and Clark Gable is—he has all his like different thumb techniques that he uses to try to get a ride, which is really great, like like physical comedy for yeah. him. Just like just the the way that he does it is very like charming and and funny. Of he kind of wiggles his thumb in a certain yeah. way. It's like that. This is the one that's uh that's that looks a little sad, and this is the one that looks uh <laughs> like I don't need you, but you should pick me up anyway. <laughs> and then uh, a comically uh a comic amount of cars go by without stopping <laughs> while he's doing all his his different thumb techniques, and then um and he starts like rapidly doing one after the other yeah. as like thirty cars pass by. Claudette Colbert as Ellie then says, like, I'll, I'll get us a ride. Uh, and she says, I won't use my thumb. And so then she uh, shows a little bit of leg and a car immediately stops. Like, like slams on the brakes. Yeah. <laughs> like, there is like n- zero time between her revealing part of her leg and a car stopping, which is a, is a funny gag. 
and then and then they eventually end up stealing that guy's car. <laughs> yeah, that part really doesn't go very remarked on that they literally just like take his car. <laughs> well, I mean, he was gonna uh, he was trying to ditch him. Right. Okay. But like, you know, you don't owe anything then, to a hitchhiker. Right, you know? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Hey, desperate times, right? They gotta, they gotta get a, yeah. they gotta get to New York. That guy's being a jerk. Just steal it's his all, car. It's all in the name of love, really. And I think exactly. that's, uh, if there's anything, if there's a thing about Christmas, it's that you tell people that you love, <laughs> you tell people you love what they mean. I, I don't remember the, the line from, from that film, yeah. but yes. Hang on, this isn't a Christmas movie. That's the next thing we're going to talk about. But hold on. Is there anything else to say about this film? Sure well, there yes, is. there there are a few more things to say. I mean, uh, there are a good number of wipes in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, which I hadn't seen in, in anywhere else or many places before. Uh, Uses in a lot of places. I should mention also the other kind of cinematic novel technique in La Delante was um, that they had some kind of overdubbed, like, I'm remembering people saying things. And mm, so they have mm-hmm. the, the word, the, the people's voices appearing yeah. while she's thinking. There's a scene where they have had to ditch the bus because uh, her dad, there, there's this whole angle of her rich dad is trying to catch her uh, and bring her home. And so he's put out like a $10,000 reward to... Mm-hmm. To, to bring her back to Florida. Her face gets started being printed on newspapers and all that sort of thing. And so they're having to sort of duck away from society and the other people around them. And they end up having to uh, leave the bus. Uh, and after this, after this scene that's really, really good with Clark Gable... <laughs> And uh, and this guy who this kind of like sleazy guy on the bus who's trying another, to hit on another her like initially. annoying traveling salesman type yeah <laughs> who says shapely is the name and that's how I like him <laughs> which is a very you know at least creeps in the 1930s had the courtesy to talk in banter yeah right I'm sure banter would be a lot better Clark Gable's character he kind of to to throw him off the scent or at least like um. Uh, I don't know, like get get him away from them. Uh, Shapely kind of comes up to them and he's like, he's like, hey, 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 guy, like, uh, I, I'll be, I'll be good with you. I'll split it. We'll do fifty fifty. You each get five thousand. And uh, he takes him. The Clark Gable takes him aside and he's like, look, buddy, there's a lot more money involved in this. I, uh, <laughs> he, I don't know how to explain it. He basically like pretends that he's a mafioso type. Yeah. Yeah, and and scares this guy off, and he says, "Here's the pants." He off says, of him. "You got a gat, a rod? You got any fireworks on you?" <laughs> Which is some great 1930s lingo. Yeah, to ask if he's carrying a gun, and he's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Shapely's the name. I didn't bother. I, yeah. I didn't. I didn't want to trifle with all this stuff." And he's like, um, "Get out of here, and don't let me see you turn around." There's a lot of funny, like, uh, especially with Clark Gable, like both him and Claudette Colbert, kind of like pretending. To be different people while they're on the run, kind of. There's the the bit where they, they're, like, faking a big... They're pretending to be a married couple in order to get a discount on their room. <laughs> and they, like, fake a big fight to kind of throw off the scent because there's some detectives that get sent after them. And also give her a reason to hide her face. Right, yeah. And then she kind of, like, becomes quite good at uh, at playing along with these bits. Yeah. A lot of the kind of growing affection that you see in this movie is them 
uh, sort of both getting good together at, at finding ways to avoid other people yeah. and, and, uh, <laughs> and scam, scam other people. Doing bits. <laughs> yeah. But it's like they're they're like faking a big fight and then the people leave and they start laughing about it. And then the people come back in. They have to like immediately start fighting again. <laughs> While they're on the run, after they leave the bus, uh, one of the most kind of lasting impacts that this movie has had is a scene where... They are uh, near a farm and finding a place to just fall asleep in the hay on the side mm-hmm. of the road because they they they're they've left the bus they've got no hotel so she ends up getting hungry. Peter Warm, uh, uh, Clark Gable's character, he goes out and finds some carrots to munch on, uh, and she's <laughs> like, "How uncooked carrots right out of the ground? I can't eat that." But he's chomping on carrots, and uh, this. In history, in in the the record, it is uh, not a hundred percent confirmed this is the case, but it, it is because Clark Gable starts chomping on carrots in a very Bugs Bunny fashion, right? And Clark Gable already has like such a kind of nineteen thirties like, all right, now look, pal, kind of voice that yeah. it 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 makes a lot of sense. But so Bugs Bunny seems to be based very much off of this scene mm-hmm. of like a wise talking thirties guy chomping on carrots <laughs> uh, and uh the fritz freeling one of the people involved in the creation of um bugs bunny uh what is a big fan of this movie so yeah it, it shows up that very much so in in the bugs bunny characterization so we have this movie to thank for that mm-hmm. so, also there's so while they're like staying at the trailer park or, or different places under the pretense of being married they they set up like the blanket between their two beds and that's a a sort of a moments of kind of romantic tension where it's like right there's like putting up a blanket and they're both kind of like you can see on either end like both of the both of them really want to cross over to their side of the blanket but like neither one will jericho yeah yeah call it um and then it's also raining outside which just i feel like kind of gives it even more of this like charged you know, it's wet outside. Get it? <laughs> but also, like, you know, they're they're seeing each other undress, like, in silhouette on the other side of this blanket. And so it's, like, this very, like, ooh, well, I want to see not it. Not even you know? in silhouette, but, like, you, they're, like, they're, like, throwing their clothes over the top of the blanket, like a clothesline. Yeah. And so yeah. it's just, like, I know what that means. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that this is considered a pre-code movie, but... It, it has a lot of uh, that pre-code innuendo stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Ellie eventually gets picked back up by her her family and is, is mad at, at Peter. So then she's going to get married to the, the wealthy aviator anyway. And then Peter shows back up to get the reward money, but he only asks for his like dry cleaning bill. It's like, what, like $8 or something. And so even yeah, he he asked for the expenses related to bringing her there. Yeah. So like the hotel and and the clothes and all and that kind they, of they kind of have a, have a moment like right before the wedding where they they talk to each other again and are both like being very like performatively angry at each other. And Ellie's dad is like, clearly there's something going on there <laughs> and way more than is going on with this asshole who flies at auto gyro. So. Ellie's dad is kind of the one to be like, hey, daughter, like, you sure you want to marry this <laughs> aviator dude? Like, 
Clark Gable's right over there. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, like while they're walking up to the, I don't know, the wedding platform, whatever you call altar. it. Uh, she's she's uh, being walked up by her dad. He's just kind of whispering like, hey, you know, like I got a car waiting if you want to dash out of here and go yeah. marry that other guy. <laughs> <laughs> Which then she does. And yes. it's great. And then the movie ends with the walls of Jericho have toppled, which we all know what that means. And it, it, the end of the movie is you see like the a blanket being taken down. Yeah, the the walls of Jericho. I, I don't really know anything about the walls of Jericho from like a religious perspective, but um, they actually play on. I I believe they're playing on this movie in uh, an episode of Neon Genesis Evangelion. If you believe oh? it or not, I thought uh, you were because say the there, there is a scene where two of the characters who kind of like have some romance, some like romantic tension going on, uh, are like like they set up like like a barrier, and they're like, "This is the impenetrable wall of Jericho." Like, I I realized like, oh, they're doing an it happened one See? night here. That's yeah. This is this is definitely one of those movies that is just like everyone likes and will reference forever kind of um it's a good movie it's yeah. very fun it is notably the first movie to sweep the oscars it won best picture best director best actor best actress and best screenplay mm-hmm. which i think has only happened like three or four times like i know that uh, i know that um sons of the lambs also did that but like and it's one pretty flew rare. Over to cuckoo's nest okay. those are the only other two yeah and yeah it's like the the influence of the kind of i don't know antagonistic like romantic tension feels very palpable of like that is such a romantic comedy staple which i mean this movie didn't invent that but it's like it's such a like clear example of it done really well and i think the sort of like the chemistry between clark cable and claudette colbert also is like that's what makes the movie i think like without them kind of having those moments where they're like either performatively being angry or just sort of like laughing over the bits they're doing or sort of like competing over little things like who can get get a car to stop or whatever like those all are just really great scenes uh speaking of a couple who love riffing each other's bits uh (laughs) we could talk about the thin man yes which is just yeah about a married couple who love messing with each other yeah. and and they love messing with other people and doing bits at other people. Yeah. Much like King Kong, this I think is one of like my favorite movies, just like full stop. Mm. The dialogue in this movie is like some of my favorite dialogue in anything I've ever seen. I love this movie. I'd seen it before, obviously. Uh, it wasn't like yeah, this was my first time. It didn't. I didn't immediately jump to the the that highly in my in my brain. I don't know this uh, this movie is so goddamn charming. I can't deal with it. <sighs> it's a lot of fun. Uh, it 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 is just two people who are just entirely sloshed through the whole movie. Right. Uh, yeah. Just <laughs> having having a good time uh, while solving a murder. <laughs> yeah. It, this this is a movie about. Uh, a retired detective and a wealthy heiress who are married, Nick and Nora Charles, and their dog, Asta, who's adorable, sort of being roped into solving a series of murders 
uh, while drinking very heavily the entire time. Um, and they made six of them. <laughs> like, this is the first of six Thin Man movies. All of I've only seen the first three, but they all kind of follow that same basic premise of, like, they don't try to get involved in a murder. They're just at a party and someone's talking about murder and they're like, oh, fine, like, I'll help you solve the murder. But also, <laughs> also let me drink eight martinis first. <laughs> There's a scene where uh, Nora kind of meets up with Nick as he has already been at a party for a while. And she's like, how many martinis in are you? And he's, he's like, eight. And she's like, bring me eight martinis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, speaking of like good romantic chemistry... Was it Myrna Loy and William Powell? William Powell have some of the best romantic chemistry of like any two actors I've ever seen. Yeah, they get along so well. And like, you know, in the last movie, it is people pretending that they hate each other because they don't want to admit to each other that they love each other. Right. And this is two people who clearly love each other, pretending to hate each other as bits and then really just to like they um, both... just to amuse each other like yeah they're, yeah <laughs> they're like their love for each other is never in doubt this entire movie it's like they're seemingly in a, a very healthy marriage but at the same time yeah do like to just like take take shots at each other through wordplay in in charming fashion yeah the wordplay and and just like the lines in this movie are so good Oh, uh, that's the, the writing in this is world cl- world class. <laughs> I feel like this is a movie I could talk about for far too long. But <laughs> um, King Kong Corner, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean it's it's pretty notable that I think like who the murderer is in this movie is like not important almost. The, like the I think plot gets quite complex and i sort of lost it after a while it's based on a book by dashiell hammett who wrote maltese falcon and a bunch of other stuff and it's kind of one of the main american authors to kind of popularize or like kind of invented like horrible detective fiction so it has a lot of really great kind of like detective lingo in this too stuff that's in like coen brothers movies or other like later noir movies um despite this having like a very kind of sort of light silly tone yeah despite all the murder this was the last book that dashiell hammett wrote and uh i think he kind of like wanted to take a break from this sort of more serious hard-boiled detective stuff and do the same kind of thing but have like a lighter tone more more just a, a romp. But so like most sort of like horrible detective stories or like noir stories, it has way too many characters and like a million red herrings and like an incredibly needlessly complicated murder plot of like who is like, you know, angry at who and like what who was giving money and stealing money from who, what other people. And like it's it's so complicated that to the point where it's like, all right, so none of this actually really matters. And ultimately kind of doesn't. Like, I think this is the third time I'd seen this movie. And I did not remember who the murderer is at the end. Because it's like, even when it's revealed at the end, it's kind of like, uh, who cares? Like, it's... The important thing about this movie is just watching Nick and Nora go to parties with their dog, drink heavily, and then, like, also happen to solve a murder while they're there. 
they love partying so much that uh, rather than just solving the murder, they're like, let's throw a party to solve the murder. Right, uh, right. They they do end gonna... up solving the murder by throwing a party, which is great. <laughs> we're going to invite all of the suspects and have the most, like, dramatic, yeah, uh, a very dramatic party. <laughs> a very dramatic dinner party where, yeah, everyone's a suspect. It's and, kind and, of... And a bunch of cops are, obvious cops are dressed <laughs> up as waiters. Yeah. There's there's a lot of really like fun side characters in this. There's um there's kind of the uh the titular thin man is not Nick Charles as is often an a common misconception. It's like the thin man of the title is the the guy or that suspect and, yeah or the yeah the, the guy who disappears and is thought to then be the murderer. So then all the sequels have to like bend over backwards to be like, how is this a sequel to the Thin Man that keeps that title despite being about different people? One of my favorite side characters in this movie is uh, Gilbert, the creepy nerd brother. <laughs> yeah. Who is just such a such a funny character. He's kind of just like a weenie mama's boy. Uh, well, he said when like the first scene he's in, he says, I know I have a mother fixation, but it's slight. <laughs> It's like, is it? <laughs> um, and then he's like obsessed with murder and like psychopaths, and like he's always like trying to like talk to cops and like just will just stare at them incessantly and freak them out, like psychoanalyze people. Yeah, so uh, it's like, but like very ham fistedly. I just I love how everyone in this movie is freaked out by Gilbert. Like all the cops are just like, what is this guy's deal? Like get him away from me. And then he meets <laughs> up like a bunch of like hardened criminals. Like, a bunch of dudes who are, like, wielding guns and, like, getting in fights, and they meet Gilbert, and, he, and they're also just like, get this guy away from me, he's freaking me out. <laughs> another, uh, another fun detail is, like, all of Nick's friends, because he's a retired detective, are all, like, criminals, or, like, ex-cops, so, like, all of Nick's mm. friends that show up are all these, this, like, kind of, uh, you know, rough band of characters that show up <laughs> to their apartment. Uh, if we're gonna talk about like like filmmaking form stuff for a second, uh, I I liked a lot of this movie is fairly normal as far as like camera angles and that kind of thing. But there was like a really cool part where they're uh, casting a dragnet across the country, and then mm. there's this image of a net like exploding out of New York City and going across a map of America, uh, which was which was a fun a fun thing for sure. Mm-hmm. To call back to an earlier movie we we're talking about. In La Delante, the the married couple naturally sleep in a bed. Uh, in this movie, Nick and Nora sleep in separate beds, which I guess even in a pre code movie, it was in in Hollywood, it was still like no, they they need to have separate twin beds with a nightstand in between. The nightstand is room for Jesus. Exactly. Yeah. There's a scene I really like in this movie where. Nick and Dorothy, who's kind of the the daughter of the the thin man who's disappeared. Dorothy comes in and is like trying to get Nick to uh, help solve solve the case. She's crying and sort of crying on on Nick's shoulder. And Nora walks in on them, and it's this moment where you think it's going to be like, oh no, like she walked in, like she's going to think there's some something hinky going on. And they no, they just like make goofy faces at each other, and Nora then like helps the situation <laughs> they're they're very secure uh, right with each other and I, I, that's the thing that i find like so refreshing in any movie really is i feel like marital strife is so often naturally often used as like a source of drama 
that like never comes up in this movie. Like there, there's never any doubt that like Nick and Nora will be like continue to be happily married, kind of. Right. Um, uh, even after and, yeah, Nick a- like punches her in the face in one scene to get her to like knock her out of the path of gunfire. And she just complains, like, I-, I wanted to see the fight. Like, what'd you knock me out for? <laughs> the whole time, Nick is like, I'm retired. I don't want to solve a murder. Like, that's not, I just want to drink. Like, that's all I'm here for. And Nora's the one who's kind of like, I-, I would really like to see you solve a murder, though. Like, I think that would be really cool. Right. Like, she got together with him after he was already retired, basically. Or, like, he retired as they got together. And so she kind of has been wanting to see some of this action for a while. Yeah. And so she's almost like needling him to like do detective stuff. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do detective stuff. Like you can't, can't get me. <laughs> um, and I don't know, just that is like their, their whole dynamic is something that I find very refreshing in movies like this that I feel like doesn't get surprisingly for how like popular this movie series is. Like I, I feel like, that kind of character dynamic doesn't come up a lot. Yeah. In movies in general, like uh, there, it's hard to have a movie with romance that doesn't have some kind of romantic tension. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right. And, and yeah, this movie I think does some really fun stuff by pushing that completely aside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It creates like a really unique dynamic between the two characters. Yeah. There is a moment where Nick is going off to like at night to investigate He's, like, finally kind of decided to help out at this point. And he, like, goes off at night to break into a building, basically. Um, and that's, like, the first time that Nork starts to get kind of worried. That it's, like, oh, shit. Like, he is kind of, like, going off to an abandoned building at night. And that's kind of the one moment where it's, like, they start, like, he starts doing bits. And she's, like, no, no, no. Hey, like, stop doing a bit for a second. Like, I'm actually kind of worried. <laughs> that's also a thing that I think kind of, kind of helps ground all the bits and it's like right yeah. it's like a, a a moment of actual kind of sincerity through all of the kind of uh all the banter this movie yeah it does have this kind of ironic distance and they have this ironic distance this entire time because they're both drunk for the entire movie <laughs> <laughs> i don't condone alcoholism it's very bad please drink responsibly but i i do really like how drunk they are for like the whole movie it gives it this really like loose vibe uh yeah it's almost like a stoner movie of the 30s yes very much so it's like it is it's like pineapple express actually yeah like that's kind of i i had never thought about that before but that's it does feel like kind of like a precursor to that entire genre this is a this is a drunk movie instead of a stoner movie (laughs) but there's things like there's like the the cops are trying to get nick to like help help out um, and Nora's like, oh, he already, he's, he's already, he already has a case. Like a case? What case? A case, a, a case of scotch. A lot of, a lot of great lines in this that I want to steal and use. Like, <sighs> got your skates, let's roll. Uh, <laughs> yeah. When, when they're, they have their, their kind of big dinner party where they've invited all the suspects. Uh, Nora says to one of the waiters, will you serve the nuts? I mean, serve the guests the nuts. Or like, uh, there's a point where the cops like bu- bust into their house and start looking around and they're like, they're like you can't you can't come in here and and come into our house. And the the cops say, "Have you ever heard of the Solomon Act?" And she says, "Oh, it's okay. We're married." <laughs> right. Which I think <laughs> is that a reference to the Man Act? Uh, I don't know what the Man Act. The is. Man Act was I, like an anti-prostitution. 
legislation from I think the late twenties, like maybe early early twenties. Um, that was like you can't like like women can't like cross state lines unless they're married or there was it was some I'm paraphrasing, but it was some like wacky law. My my thought was that maybe it had some kind of it was some kind of reference to sodomy, like the Solomon Act or something like that. Uh, but I don't know. It's just yeah. it's just funny, no matter what it is intending right. to mean. <laughs> Regardless of what it means, it is just very funny. Nick has his big sort of like detective monologue where he's like running down like, all right, here's what happened. You know, this this guy was doing this. This guy was doing this. And this he's explaining the whole plot that's led up to the whole movie. And like halfway through, Nora leans in and goes, is any of this true? And he's like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Which even that is like. That's such a classic, like, detective story thing. Like, the detective lays out all the facts, right? Yeah. And then, meanwhile, Nick Charles is just like, I, I'm kind of making half this shit up, but that's the only way it makes sense. So, you're just going to have to roll with it. <laughs> he understands it better than I do. Yeah. Uh, that that scene where he was doing all of the explaining, it was a lot of stuff for him to memorize all in one take. Uh, and... Myrna Loy in her autobiography was writing about shooting that scene and how uh, they were serving oysters during the party and the oysters started stinking. Oh, no. Because that, because that scene lasted so long and they kept having to retake it over and also, over again. Those those old Fresnel lights, I'm sure, were not helping. Yeah. <laughs> cooking the oysters. Dang. Yeah, this movie was nominated for Best Picture, lost to It Happened One Night, but had five sequels a radio show, a TV show, uh, a stage musical, and uh, presumably an infinite playlist as well. Since I I assume that's where that title comes from. It's a reference. Is it's it's a riff yeah. on this, yeah. Uh, there's also a cocktail glass called the Nicanora glass, which is named after those characters. And there's a cocktail called uh, the, the Nicanora as well. Okay. Um, is it just, I, is it like a Long Island iced tea? It's just every type of <laughs> liquor? <laughs> it's like a, uh, it's a gin thing, I think. Yeah. Um, it's like a riff on a martini. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew that this movie was like a heavy drinking movie. And I started making a cock, like, I started trying to make cocktails to, um, uh, for myself to watch, to, to mm-hmm. drink while watching the movie. Get, get the, the 4D um, experience. To get the 4D experience, there were a couple th- cocktails that are particularly featured in this movie, and the one that was the most appetizing to me was the Manhattan, uh, which he uh, Nick says that you have to shake it to a foxtrot beat. Mm-hmm. So I put some foxtrot music on <laughs> to, to shake my Manhattan too. I, I went to the the liquor store because I was out of sweet vermouth, uh, which was a part of a long series of just me getting distracted on the way to watching this movie. <laughs> I can't watch it. I can't watch the Thin Man. I'm out of sweet vermouth. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. So I went to the liquor store, and then uh, I didn't get carded, presumably because when I asked the guy, "Can I have your your smallest bottle of sweet vermouth?" That would not be a thing that anyone underage would ask for. That good point. Uh, yeah. Right. So no, no one who's like going to a liquor store who's underage and is trying to buy liquor is like, "Hmm, I need a very small bottle of sweet vermouth, please." <laughs> but uh yeah then i i got a headache because i drank a cocktail and then i got distracted with other things and so it took me a long time to actually watch <laughs> this movie because i was getting too distracted with drinking yeah i think i think maybe the the 4d experience is maybe not advised 
for for yeah. watching this movie. We probably won't watch them for the show, but the the second two movies are are also very enjoyable. It's like After the Thin Man and like Curse of the Thin, of the Thin something Man, something like that. Yeah, it's they all have like increasingly kind of convoluted titles. But um, this is also a, a Christmas movie, very uh, timely to watch it's it when we Christmas, did. It's a Christmas detective movie, yeah. a la Shane Black. Yeah, yeah. So and yet another reason why it's one of my favorites. This uh, I should also note really quick that this has an early appearance of Cesar Romero. Uh, oh, the 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 Joker from the '60s Batman. He plays the the boy toy of the uh, the the rich ex wife mm, in this movie. Right. Yeah, there, there's so many like great like the the insanely large uh, supporting cast is is a lot of very fun kind of like '30s stock characters that all have their own dramas going on. Asta the dog is played by Skippy, who was a a wire fox terrier who had a long and successful career as an actor. Uh, Yeah, we saw Skippy in Merrily We Go to Hell. uh, Uncredited in that film. uh, And he's also in Bringing Up Baby. Yeah. Uh, I was trying to find out like which which Thin Man movies Skippy plays Asta in, but the dog is always credited as Asta in every Thin Man movie, so it's very difficult to kind of suss out like which movies Asta is played by the same dog. But um uh, what 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 a dream this movie is of just like I, I would love to one day drunkenly solve a murder with a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Another movie about crime and intrigue. Crime crime solving husband and wife situation. Yeah, very true. Good segue. Yep. To The Man Who Knew Too Much, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Yes, and this is... Uh, Alfred Hitchcock made two movies with this title. Uh, one, right. Another one in the 50s with Jimmy Stewart. Uh, with apparently a, a bit of a different plot. I haven't... Uh, I haven't. Jimmy Stewart, seen... who appears in the second Thin Man movie. Oh. Yeah, the, the, I haven't seen the other one, but uh, I, I imagine yeah, that same. this uh, is rather different because it seems... There's aspects of this that are very post World War One. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that the other Hitchcock movie is like it is a remake, but it's like a lot of it is changed. Like it takes place in different locations, and it's it's kind of the the basic setup. I think is the same, but otherwise it's pretty different. But I don't know. I haven't seen it. The man who knew too much is the the main character, and he uh, kind of has witnessed a murder of a friend, a sort of friend acquaintance of his who it turns out was a secret agent Mm -hmm. and he is trying to um, figure out what's going on with this mystery while also not letting the cops get involved because his daughter got kidnapped Mm -hmm. and they'll, they'll kill her if he goes to the police. But he does not have a particular set of skills. He is just a, a, a wealthy British man. So he has to make do with just gumption. Yeah, and he's kind of he's kind of bumbling his way through a lot of this stuff. I think this is I don't know if this is the first example of this, but this is a very like classic Hitchcock setup of like ordinary person or people kind of like fall backwards accidentally into some like crazy spy plot mm-hmm. that they're not involved in, but sort of like get caught up in and then have to make do despite not being spies themselves and kind of yeah, just through the skin of their teeth like get out of the situation um i feel like north by northwest is probably like the most that's kind of like the the 
the peak of that kind of mm-hmm. Hitchcock subgenre. I feel like all of my favorite Hitchcock movies are are this. Like are all basically <laughs> just the man who who knew too much over and over again. Like um it's just it's such a great setup to have like you know, someone who isn't a spy get caught up in spy uh intrigue. Yeah. This guy is like initially kind of jealous of this spy uh he doesn't really have as good of a relationship with his wife i think <laughs> i thought it was kind of strange at the beginning of the movie that he's always like telling his daughter like hey shut up buzz yeah, off <laughs> he's, he's he's kind of a big old jerk in the beginning of the movie which is kind of part of the thing is that he's he's yeah he's like a wealthy rich guy who's like kind of a jerk his family doesn't really like him that much or it seemingly doesn't get along with his family great and then it's like a crisis happens and he has to yeah become a man of action kind of right yeah there's there's a moment right because his uh so bob and jill lawrence are the the married couple and then their daughter is betty as they say some really like heavy duty english accents in this movie yeah they every time they say thank you in this movie they say thank y'all thank (laughs) y'all and a lot of a lot of uh i say (laughs) uh so jill lawrence is a like uh a sharpshooter or like an Olympic shooting person, whatever that's called. Clay shooting. I don't Yeah. Clay and she's, shooting. she's in a, in a uh, shooting competition with, with this other guy, right. As he's about to shoot, uh, uh, a, a watch goes off and Betty says something about it. And then Jill misses the shot. And Bob, the dad just goes, it was all your fault. Fat head, which is like, don't <laughs> say that to your daughter. Jesus, man. <laughs> fatherly the year over here oh the the her her shooting rival like um the the daughter i believe like says he's got too much brilliantine which i looked up it's like a like a hair gel for men and so every (laughs) every time you see this guy in a scene it starts with a close-up shot of his greasy hair uh which is a very funny like a very funny like recurring bit it's like oh you know this guy's in the scene because like we're gonna pull out from a extreme close-up of his greasy black hair oh boy it's funny i did notice the like all the hair close-ups i thought that was just kind of like a weird flourish but um that is very funny uh but the the real reason why jill mr shot is because the watch went off and the watch is owned by uh peter lurie in his first English language role. Yes. He did not speak English yet. So a la right. early Jackie Chan English roles, he had to just like learn the sounds that he was making. Yeah. And then and then say them. I think he does I, I kind of I I bought I, it I would never have English. guessed that. Like yeah. he doesn't sound he has like a slightly stronger accent in this movie than he does in like his later Hollywood movies, but not by a lot. Like he speaks very good English for not knowing what he's saying. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Laura's watch is kind of a re- another recurring thing, like the his watch chime. Good use of sound, too. Hitchcock making use of uh, sound being a thing. It's like Peter Laurie's whistling in M. Right, yeah. This is all happening in in, uh, in Switzerland at, like, a ski resort. So Jill is, is dancing on the dance floor with, with the spy, who's, like, their old friend, I guess. And uh, Bob, because he's jealous ties a string to the back of the guy's coat so that like it'll unravel the string as they're dancing around and like get them caught up with everyone else's dancing 
very petty. <laughs> right, very petty. I do like how during the scene, uh, it cuts to Peter Laurie just like laughing his ass off. Like, <laughs> it, like there's a specific shot where it just like, cuts to him and Peter Laurie sees this and he's like, oh boy, this is great. <laughs> yeah, like you don't necessarily know that Peter Laurie is the evil mastermind and he's just kind of a funny guy who's around up right. until that point. Yeah. Right, it's like, you know that clearly he's like, I mean, he's on the poster, so that's probably a tip-off. But it's, like, early in the movie, right? He is just kind of a guy that's there. And he's he's definitely featured heavily. It's clear that he's, like, a main character. But, yeah, I like the kind of, like, slow reveal of that he's kind of the the main villain. And then uh, there's a uh, a shot through the window. The spy friend has to, like, very quietly die from being shot because he doesn't want to make a scene and because he has to, like, get information out the country yeah so he he tells jill to go up to his room and get a piece of paper outside uh, inside of a brush that he has uh and then deliver it to like a like a certain person um and uh at which it's a secret message with some information of political importance uh and so after he dies they they run up to the room uh, but then they kind of get caught up with the cops trying to go up to his room as well. And they're only barely able to uh, get a hold of the document. Uh, but in the meantime, the kind of rival sharpshooter, he initially tries to take it, take take the, the piece of paper from them. Uh, but then he gets cut off by the cops mm-hmm. uh, before he's able to. And he comes up with another plan, which is to kidnap their daughter and uh threaten them to say like if they tell if they relay this information then he'll kill their daughter Mm -hmm. uh and thus begins this kind of like uh this tense uh this tense balance they have to play between like trying to figure out where their daughter is and getting to the bottom of this mystery is sort of like the way they do it they're approached by some people from uh some like spies and they're basically saying like uh, it doesn't you have to let your daughter die because this is like this is a huge a matter of huge inter intercountry importance that mm-hmm. this like that we're trying to stop an assassination here uh and they're like we don't we don't know who this guy is like we we like if it's a matter of whether our daughter's going to die or this guy's going to die then like we have to rescue our daughter Speaking of the kind of post-World War One aspect, like the, the spy guy, he says, In June 1914, had you heard of Sarajevo? Of course you hadn't. I bet you hadn't even heard of Archduke Ferdinand. But because a month later, a man you'd never heard of killed a man you'd never heard of in a place you'd never heard of, this country was at war. Mm. It's pretty good. Yeah. Great, great moment. Yeah, like, such, such a great setup of, like, spy stuff's happening. The main characters don't really care about that, like... All of the spy intrigue is kind of in a very kind of Hitchcocky way. It's like definitely kind of taking a backseat. It's like the actual importance of like the secret documents and the, you know, all that stuff is like, you don't really have to worry about that. What matters is like parents need to get their daughter back. That's what like, that's what's going to carry us through the rest of this movie. They do kind of like hatch a plan with the, uh, with like the British spy agency to, um, to get their daughter back, and so they have to go to a small town 
in England, uh, where the bad guys are hit out, and there follows a series of kind of Hitchcock set pieces. I guess I don't know. <laughs> they start they they they're, they start kind of deciding to solve this mystery, and as soon as as soon as Bob gets into uh, being a detective mode, he puts on a trench coat and a fedora. Well, because uh, that's the thing. Is... Then this movie made me think about that. That it's like that was a genuinely good disguise in 1934 because that's just what everyone wore and you could blend into any crowd that way right 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 but it's funny that that became the sort of like the kind of cliche costume for like a detective or a spy or someone who like is supposed to be keeping a low profile and it's like i know this from experience if you wear a trench coat and a fedora you stick out in a crowd (laughs) you you look like a cartoon so you know uh, but it works in this movie because it's actually the 30s, and that's how people dressed. The mystery-solving intrigue brings them to a couple really fun set pieces, like you were saying. One is this uh, sort of tense moment trying to investigate this guy who's posing as a dentist, or he's a dentist, right. but like, he's also a bad there's, guy. There's like a dentist's office that's like a front for the bad guy's crime ring, and there's a creepy dentist. And and there's a point where the dentist realizes that they're kind of onto him, and so he starts forcing the nitrous onto onto Bob to knock him out, and uh, Bob like is able to like wrest it out of his hands and then spin it around and like just like force the dentist onto the chair and then like ram the <laughs> like ram the 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 breathing apparatus like onto his face until he knocks him out which is really cool. Yeah. And then he puts on like the dentist coat and the glasses and then he pretends to be the dentist working on the now unconscious crime dentist and can and can over, over you know overhear some conversations about uh where the bad guys are are hit out. And so they, they follow them to uh, a, like, a church, but it's, like, a weird, like, sun cult church. Yeah. What a, what a strange introduction, or what a strange, like, inclusion in this movie. Right. And so then they're, like, trying to blend in in this, like, weird cult church uh, while everyone's singing. And Bob is, is there with a guy named Clive. And so the way he's, they're, like, communicating is, like, singing along to the tune of that what everyone else is singing in the church, but they're just talking. So he's like, Clive, 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 what are we gonna do? <laughs> the entire Sun Cult Church is all like a secret society of bad guys, basically. Yeah. Um, so it's it's extremely obvious from the moment that they're in there that they are uh, intruders. Yeah. Then uh, Bob starts a chair fight, which is a, a very fun sort of action scene, I guess. Of where they're just throwing breakaway chairs at each right. other. Right. There's like an entire church full of chairs that all get thrown. Him and the bad guys are just chucking chairs back and forth, and all of them break. Every There's single a point bunch. later in the movie where some cops walk in, in into that area, and they're just like, "What is all this mess?" <laughs> so good. Uh, but so then it's so sort of Bob gets caught by the bad guys, basically. So then it's like they have the daughter and Bob. Bob finds out that their their secret plan is they're going to uh, assassinate this ambassador uh, at a classical music concert. And they're going to use like the crescendo of the music to hide the sound of the gunshot. Classic spy gag. That's cool. Yeah. It is, I mean, that like set piece at the, the concert is yeah. like almost verbatim in 
Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Like, yep. <laughs> I have no doubt that that is like a direct reference to this movie, which is, I don't know, I, I find it so funny watching like just old movies in general. I mean, like, oh, that's where this like other famous thing comes from. It happens a lot. Bob is able to get out warning to Jill about what the plan is. Um, and so then Jill goes to the concert and is like, if she tells the cops and they stop the assassination, then her husband and her daughter will get killed. But she knows that this ambassador is about to get assassinated. So like, can she do nothing? And there's this like very tense, very like quintessential Hitchcock set piece of like, she can kind of see where everything is. Like she can see her, like her old rival posted up with a gun she can see the ambassador. You can see where the cops are. And she's like... And she doesn't... She can kind of guess that something's going to happen, but she doesn't know exactly when. And right. so there's like this tension ratcheting up of like, you know that the moment in the song that the gunshot is going to happen is coming mm-hmm. up. But she's like having to keep an eye on him to see when it seems like he's about to shoot. Because she like is not fully able... She doesn't know it could happen any second, basically. Yeah. But it's it's very uh the um the like Hitchcock thing where he talks about like uh suspense is telling the audience that there's a bomb under the table, but not letting the characters know, kind of, and that's this is kind of kind of a variation on that of like both the audience and Jill know that this thing is about to happen, but not exactly when or how. Um and yeah, it's very tense. Like it it holds up very well. Jill screams, and so that causes the the shot to only wound the ambassador so it's like initially it seems like it went off without a hitch but she um, gets she gets back at this guy for um you know his hijinks making her miss her shot in right. the beginning because she she makes him miss his shot just yeah. slightly um and so then the the police like chase him back to the follow him back to the hideout and there's this sort of like standoff siege between the police and the bad guys it's a quite a violent shootout yeah yeah um i mean like this and maybe like uh like scarface or something it's like when the only other movies i guess some of their like gangster movies you watch that have like extended like gunfights in them yeah and uh it is kind of like peter laurie during this part is like he's kind of like mildly frustrated by like being in a gunfight it seems like he's like (laughs) he's very kind of like fine like i guess he's like a very confident a very confident criminal mastermind. Yeah. Uh, Um, And so like anything, he just kind of rolls with all the punches. Right. Yeah. And then you get the big like finale where Bob gets Betty out, but is shot and wounded. And then there's kind of like the the rooftop showdown. The the assassin who's the guy with the hair is like cornered Betty on a rooftop and like the police can see it. And then Jill seeing this, uh, well, there's the police sharpshooter. It's like, and he's like, I can't like, take, I can't make the shot. I can't take the <laughs> shot. And then, but then Jill, who we know is like, uh, you know, an expert marksman, markswoman, grabs the rifle from him and uh, shoots the bad guy, who is also her like competitor in in shooting her her sports rifle. Yeah, um, but just like such a great such a great like setup and payoff that it's like that they are sports rivals at the beginning. She's the one to kind of like save the daughter at the end by shooting the guy 
I don't know. Just that all the the satisfaction of that scene is like so perfectly calibrated. It's really well put together. Like as soon as that happened, I was like, yes. Oh, this is exactly what I wanted to happen. <laughs> oh, and then another great like setup payoff thing is like the police bust into the the hideout and Peter Lorre is like hiding behind a, a door, but his watch chimes again and gives him away. And so they they get him. Peter Lorre is really good in this movie. He's really good. He's got like the like scar over his eye. And he's he's always like has like a cigarette like kind of hanging out of his mouth a little bit. He's very like just a great sort of sinister, but also like very like relaxed, like laid back villain. Yeah. Who's like kind of above it all and is like mostly just tired by like having to deal with what's happening. Uh yeah. Really good writing, really well put together. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah. Since we're do we did five movies this time instead of six, it's a it's much more manageable. Yeah. It? Yeah. Uh we're done. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite film that we watched? That's tough. I I really liked Man Who Knew Too Much, It Happened One Night, and The Thin Man. I mm. liked them all a lot. Yeah. Um yeah. maybe just because like it happened one night is so charming. Uh I'll go for that because I also because I know that you're going to pick the Thin Man, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's goes without saying, Thin Man is my favorite, but um, but yeah, the those other two are also like great movies. Just like couldn't like I I would recommend them to like pretty much anybody. I think, but yeah, the Thin Man is like so calibrated to like what I like in movies. Also, where I'm just like, <laughs> oh yes, this is great. Like I might watch it again just because. It's like yeah. a, it's like a very enjoyable like comfort food movie for me. Uh, or maybe I'll watch one of the other five Thin Men movies. <laughs> yeah, I'd like I definitely like to watch some more of them. I I mean, we're getting into some really good films that yeah. are just like all time classics. As we've sort of talked about a bit, it's becoming uh, less of a podcast of discovery and more rediscovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, where we're we're getting to experience these classics within their historical context instead mm-hmm. of like finding stuff that's yeah necessarily completely new. And yeah, I think even the thin man, like knowing that it came out, I guess I knew this before, but like knowing that it came out like right after prohibition ended too, is another thing where it's just like, yeah. it's so kind of like celebratory about drinking. And it's like everyone in the movie is just drinking constantly that it's like, we can drink again. Let's all, let's all just throw a party. <laughs> Yeah, and get, getting to see these genres sort of build themselves over the course of time, mm-hmm. I think, has has been good. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of a lot of stuff in several of these movies that feels like it's like very kind of like foundational, and then it's like oh, like tons of movies reference this thing. Uh, well, with that being said, I guess uh, we'll call it for this week. We have actually decided on what our movies for next week are. We could announce them right now. Ooh. So you all can new Sure. Yeah. It might be it might be good to do, right? Yeah. This list is subject to a little change. We might add a little bit, but if you are trying to uh check out some of these movies before we talk about them, uh our nineteen thirty five movies are going to be Bride of Frankenstein, The Thirty Nine Steps, uh Triumph of the Will, uh Top Hat, and A Night at the Opera. Hell hell of a lineup. We'll we'll certainly have uh, a tough time talking well, that's, about that's, some of those that, movies. That's all features, right? Yes. So there's probably going to be at least one short thrown in there also. Which we haven't decided yet. Right, yeah. But 
you know, you can watch a short or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> uh, easy. But yeah, I hope I hope having that list will help you out in uh, in following along next week. And if you'd like to follow us on Instagram and all that kind of stuff, you can do that. It's at one week one year. But the links are in the description of wherever you're watching or listening. Uh, you can listen on Spotify, your podcast app, all that kind of stuff, and uh, and check us out on YouTube. <laughs> and uh, yeah, with that, Glenn, uh, I think that's about it. So I'll see you next year. See you next year.